everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 632, Lions and Texans and Bucks. Oh my. Chillians. Welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie, who looks like he's wearing a uh, check uh, designed Niners hat. Is that true? Has that got Corner. some glitter on it? <laughs> no, I'm not Juszczyk designed. Just, uh, it's actually their like fighting cancer, catch cancer theme. With catch like... cancer? <laughs> Is that, was that, that was not the slogan. That wasn't the slogan, no. I don't think it's... Uh, Someone gets fired for that one. <laughs> probably. But yes, supporting. I've been wearing it for the last few episodes we've recorded. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Uh, I don't think I won a single bet over the six games. <laughs> I had a collection of like one losses or got, you know, two of the three games right or did an in-game parlay and had three out of the four things come true. The only thing I was consistently getting winning or winning on was uh, my parents and myself would each pick one prop bet per game. And we put into like a, like a treble and we hit that. We did that for Sunday and Monday and we hit three out of the four games. So it's pretty good. It was like 10 for 50, 10 for 60, but we were like pretty consistent. Yeah, and the one, one of the ones, the one we lost was Tony Pollard total yards. I think he needed eighty six and a half, and he ended with eighty five. So that was a tough loss. It's rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was a difficult, difficult weekend of games. Obviously, for a few more upsets than we'd expected. I mean, last week we in the preview we said there are always upsets in wild card weekend, and actually underdogs historically do pretty well. And, we didn't uh, say there's um, almost always one favorite that wins. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. And in the end, in the end, it was a it was a rough week for the favorites, and so it was it was difficult to find winners out there. I mean, I guess if you were just taking the points consistently, you had a really nice weekend. You only, yeah. I guess, only had well, you had would have lost twice. You would have gone four and two if you'd just taken the underdogs with the points. Oh. But uh, but no, for- uh, interesting slate of games. Yeah, I think for me the the killer of the the weekend in terms of like bets and just general like what the hell like mind blown was the Cowboys. I mean, I think that was the one that screwed me the most. Yeah, and that's the most surprising. I mean, okay, the the manner in which the Texans beat the Browns probably is surprising, but I don't think anyone would have sort of bet their life no. the Browns were definitely going to win. Again, if you hadn't told me the last three weeks of the regular season, you had said. 39-year-old Joe Flacco starting for the Browns, you know, against a nothing-to-lose Texans team. Okay. <laughs> Maybe yeah. everyone got a little caught up in Flacco-mania. <laughs> Maybe. And then equally, obviously, the Eagles losing. And then maybe the manner in which they lost is also kind of surprising, just actually just basically being blown out. But still, there was reason, you know, they'd lost what, four of their last five games of the regular season. There wasn't there – wasn't, it's not that shocking. Um, oh, for their lost. last eight against the spread. Yeah. But then the Cowboys, who appeared to be coming into the, this game in pretty much top form, okay, against the Packers team, the second half of the season looked very good, but still at home, 
won their last 16 games at home. I think rightfully everyone expected them to kind of handle their business. And for that game to be over a quarter and a half into it, I think that was even the more stunning thing. Yeah, it was just... So that was actually the only game I watched out, like at a bar. And I unfortunately had to watch at a Packers bar. Which at the end of the day, I really didn't care so much because, yes, I had, you know, my bets were on the Cowboys. But, what you know, some of them were prop bets, so I didn't even have the Cowboys winning. So at the end of the day, I wasn't super pissed about it. But, uh, yeah, that was interesting. I mean, that was just an absolute ass whooping <laughs> yeah i mean should we go through the games in all in order yeah we can so if we start with the browns texans game uh which was started off i mean it looked like it was going to be a back and forth contest and then the browns just kind of fell off the back-to-back pick sixes from uh joe flacco kind of killed the game off if you wanted to be a little bit of a browns defender I think you could maybe say that some of the officiating decisions went against them when that game was close and that maybe had they had the rub of the green on some of those decisions, it sounds crazy to say because they lost by so much in the end, but it could have definitely changed the outcome. I mean, the notable one was they had a definite pass interference where they then that would have given them a first down sort of decent field position in terms of getting to like the halfway line. And then in the end had ended up punting, uh, I have to I say know. though, the, the officiating was just bad overall in that game, and and this is this is what I think we've talked about a few times now that I don't like. It's the just let the players play the game, don't let the officials change the outcome. But they did, they kind of did that in this game, and it changed the outcome because they were just not making calls. Like, and, and yes, maybe the Browns had a few more go against their way, but also on the other side, the Texans had a few. We were like. That was clearly pass interference. The guy hit him three seconds before the ball. Like, no, we're going to let him play. Like, no, that's not how you fucking officiate. You just do a good job of officiating, and then you don't affect the outcome of the game because you're officiating with the rules. Like, that was just – that officiating in that game was the – it was not good across the board this weekend, which is a, a, a unfortunate theme for the NFL, but that I thought actually was the worst game. Yeah. No, it probably was the worst, and I do agree with you overall – I don't think there was there, – there were bad moments from pretty much every game, and that has become a theme this season. So it will be interesting to see how they can address that going forward because we really don't want another Super Bowl where one of the talking points is decisions made by the officials, which obviously was a talking point at the end of the Super Bowl last year. But for the Browns, I mean, their their defense didn't really cause the Texans any trouble. For yeah. Miles Garrett – not a great look, it has to no. be said. He was kind of a non-factor for that entire game. He had one play on a shovel pass where he managed to get into the backfield really quickly, but that was because he was completely unblocked. So, you know, there was not – you kind of came out – came into that game with this standout defense. They were burned time and time again for huge plays, which is, you know, what the Texans aim to do. And I guess if you, you know, kind of using the advantage of hindsight – you know, certainly I felt going into it that this was a nice matchup for the Browns. Maybe the fact that the Texans are so geared for big plays meant that that pass rush advantage that the Browns were going to have wasn't as big of a factor. But, uh, yeah, I mean, just a lot of players on that Browns team kind of didn't show up. Their entire defense basically failed to make any notable plays. 
offensively, I think you can really only blame Flacco because <laughs> those, you know, everyone else kind of did okay. It was those backbreaking pick sixes. God, I mean, they were bad. to have back to have back to back. One of which was the first one in particular <sighs> when he's attempting to find Njoku. <laughs> it's first and ten. They're on the Texans forty, something like that. They they kind of put started to put a drive together. They were you know within touching distance. You did feel like okay if they can score a touchdown on this drive, this is a game again. Yeah, first and ten on Houston's thirty four. Yeah, and you know he escapes a little bit of pressure. It's a situation where another quarterback probably would have just with a who was a bit more agile probably would have picked up an extra five six yards on the ground and. That would have been the end of that play. Okay, Flacco is not a quarterback built to do that, especially not at this age. Just throw it away. Second and 10. It's okay. Instead, he tries to force a throw, like severely underthrows Njoku, and it's game over, basically, from that point on. And that's the real, that's the one where you have to look back on and feel like, you know, we got to see the, the best and worst of Flacco over this time he spent with the Browns. And that was absolutely the worst side of Joe Flacco. That was the, hey, guys, I had fun playing for you, but don't think for a second I want to come back next year. If you need me to give you incentive to not bring me back, here it is. I mean, that's the tough thing, right? If you're the Browns. I mean, maybe this, in a sense, maybe this performance has made it easier because maybe this has quelled some of the talk that Joe Flacco is a definite NFL starter. Maybe this has now put them in a situation where they can sign Flacco as a backup and have that safety and maybe have a bit of a competition between him and Deshaun Watson and see what happens going into the next season. Whereas had he won that game, talk was of him not only being a definite starter with the Browns, but also a potential starter elsewhere. So they might have got themselves into a bit of a bidding war for Flacco's services. Yeah. It'll it's, be interesting to see if he wants to come back and interesting to see exactly who wants him. Yeah, if if Watson wasn't probably preoccupied visiting his old hotspots in Houston during the game, he probably would have been smiling watching that game. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of the only winner of things from the Browns' perspective. Really bad look. Oh, he's the only I mean, one who won on that team on Sunday, I bet. <laughs> yeah. Miles My, Garrett's the big loser, I think, because in the argument, you know, the constant discussion of him being you know one of the greatest players in his position over the last decade two decades a kind of generational talent of which i think there's no debating in a sense just how good he can be but not showing up in the way that he did in a playoff game when you won't have that many opportunities when you're him uh it's it's not a great look yeah, and it wasn't – I mean, he was going against an, an okay tackle. It wasn't like he was going up against, you know, like all pro tackle. You know, he he was favored in that matchup. And it was interesting because it was a lot of early talk on Miles Garrett. You know, like this is a matchup we're going to be interested in. We can't wait to see this matchup. How's Garrett going to do this and that? And then by like the third or fourth quarter, they weren't even like talking about him anymore. Like there was a point where I thought he was injured. Because his name just was never spoken. It was, yeah, that was not a not a great look. Um, but I think overall, I mean, I think, you know, we're talking a lot about the Browns, but I like you got to give the Texans credit and you have to give C.J. Stroud credit. I mean, this, 
I, he's 22 years old and it didn't even phase him that they were, you know, like a home underdog, pretty much disrespected. It, no one really thought they had much of a shot. Like he was calm in the pocket. He was good. He moved around well, good touch on his passes. Like it was an impressive performance for him. And I think, you know, now what's really nice, I think is they've, he's got that win under his belt. So no matter what happens next week, this is a very successful season for him and for the Texans. So I, I, I think that was a great performance by them. And, you know, between him and Will Anderson Jr., also a rookie, you know, did pretty well. I, I think this is going to look good for the Texans moving forward. And a great, great job by Ryans, too. I think this looks really good on Ryans, and, and which we're going to talk about in a little bit, I'm sure, in a year where it looks like every coach is on the hot seat. You know, he steps in here and does really well with this team. Yeah, no, I mean, C.J. Stroud, you know, arguably the greatest rookie quarterback season of all time. And to, yeah, play your first playoff game in your rookie season and to look as composed as he did. Again, if I have any remaining skepticism, there's just this certain element that this team that's so built on this big play uh, approach does lend itself to some occasionally spectacular quarterback performances, right? Because they're willing to just take deep shots down the field really consistently. So, you know, when things do work reasonably well for them, that's obviously going to lead to impressive quarterback performances statistically and from a sort of eye test perspective. But yeah, it's, he's obviously very good. I mean, I think, you know, it makes the decision that the Panthers took last season look worse and worse every sort of snap he takes. But I guess, again, on my roles to be the negative one, right? I do expect them to lose next week. I think they might come down to earth slightly in that experience. And then part of me thinks not looking at a sophomore slump necessarily with uh, Stroud, but definitely kind of looking at the talent available on that team. They've definitely overperformed this season, right? So I do feel I, I'm a little cautious with them that people are suddenly going to start to set expectations of, well, we're going to, we're going to project growth from the Texans year on year. And the reality is there's a very good chance that next year is a slight step backwards, not because CJ Stroud isn't a very good quarterback, but just because I think everything for the most part, aside from CJ Stroud being out for a couple of weeks kind of went their way this season. Well, Tank Dell has been out the last few weeks too. So their number one receiver didn't even play in this game. <laughs> no yeah but i just yeah, think so. into, yeah no I, know, I, I agree with you I, I i i think do i think next year even with a few additions they are a super bowl contender no and maybe this comes back to bite me and cj stroud just like steps it up to a whole nother level next year but i think they are a playoff team a division winner in a division that's not so great and you know maybe Maybe they can make it to a championship game next year, but I do not consider them even next year a, a Super Bowl, a true Super Bowl contender. No, I, I mean, I, I definitely don't think they will be a Super Bowl contender. I wouldn't even be stunned if next year they didn't make the playoffs. I mean, you say it's not a great division, but, you know, the Colts have shown themselves to be consistently decent. They probably will be competitive next season. And then the question remains can Jacksonville sort themselves out? But if Jacksonville did manage to make some degree degree of improvement, then 
you know, like we have to remember the Texans were not that far away from not even being in the playoffs this season, right? I mean, A, because they should have probably lost to the Colts based on the position that the Colts got themselves into in that game against the Texans in week 18. Then you factor in, the, you know, the Jags should have won that division, for, again, from the position that they were in with five weeks to go. So, you know, they, they were, they've been a little bit fortunate. So let me ask you this, Eddie. Let's say Texans next week lose, don't play terrible, but Stroud has an okay game, nothing catastrophic, but they lose to to the Ravens. Next year, you're given the option. Do you want C.J. Stroud or Trevor Lawrence? Who do you take? Well, I mean, I would take C.J. Stroud right now. (laughs) I I mean, regardless of what happens next, unless – you tell me that the Raven, like if one of his arms falls off against the Ravens, <laughs> I think I'm taking C.J. Stroud next season. I think we've seen enough from him. But I, that, that is also, right, we saw nice things from Trevor Lawrence at times over in his rookie season. And we've, you know, he had a huge playoff comeback last year. Like we, we do have this, A, recency bias and also the temptation to, you know, really love new things over, you know, the kind of shiny new object. So, but yeah, I mean, right now I would take CJ Stroud over Trevor Lawrence. You know, if, if I were the Jags and the Texans called me up and said, we want to do a straight swap CJ Stroud for Trevor Lawrence. I don't think I'm, I'm not blinking. That's a, that's a straight trade for me that I would do in a heartbeat. Yeah. Okay. So we move on to the next game, which was Chiefs Dolphins, right? That was a night game. For Correct. Yeah. Yeah, the, so the there's so free... many games. I, it's it literally like it became a blur towards the end. <laughs> yeah, and especially with it ending up, the, like every the day it was like eight hours straight of football, three days in a row. <laughs> well, not Sunday. Well, yeah, I guess we we missed just the one game of Sunday, but yeah, the yeah. The, the fact that we ended up with two two two, yeah, made it feel a little, a little strange. Much. Like even as Monday kicked in, like as excited as I was to watch Buffalo versus the Steelers. I was already kind of losing a little bit of interest. And then that night game, like the Monday, we'll get, which we'll get to the Monday night game. I mean, I watched the first quarter on my television. And after that, even I conceded to the, let's watch something else. And I'll just watch this on my phone on mute, you know, cause like it, it just was getting too much. And then that game was just not good. <laughs> it was not no, fun I, to watch. <laughs> but I guess also the other element here, right. Is only one game this weekend was close. Only one game wasn't a more than a one score finish. Yeah. So that's the other thing is it becomes, you get the kind of fatigue sets in just because you're also not really getting much excitement out of the games themselves. So that, that was an issue. The chiefs dolphins game. I mean, in the end, yeah, it kind of went the way that I suppose we expected it to. The dolphins just really didn't handle the conditions. I, I mean, they're not, a I think that's slightly unfair to say that. Because this is like a Chiefs defense that has gone under the radar. They're a top five defense in almost every statistical measure. And I think everyone is just so focused on the offense that they always just say, like, yeah, and their defense can be good at times. But this year, they've been a really good defense. And this isn't the first time they've, like, shut down a good team. I mean, you look at the Bills, who have put up, what, 31 against the Steelers. The Chiefs held the Bills pretty well in the game that they – you know, should have won had it not been for the Kadarius Tony offsides. That's a game they probably win and held the Chiefs to 
the Bills to what, 20 that game, right? They lost 20 to 17, something like that. But, you know, like, it's a good defense. And, yes, I'm sure the weather played into it. But they basically shut down this Dolphins offense. I mean, they they gave Hill that one catch, and then after that, they demolished him. I mean, there's, there's – I don't know if you saw the videos of uh, Snead just manhandling him on the line uh, in, in press. Like, they're a, more, they're a physical defense. They're a good – they have a good secondary. And I think it, it's going to – that defense is what's going to potentially beat the Bills. I don't think it's going to be the Chiefs' offense. I think it's going to be their defense. But the weather was yeah. ridiculous. Like, yeah. having said all that, the weather was – that's just – and you know I hate weather games. That was just fucking stupid. <laughs> we'll leave that out of it. <laughs> just to respond to what you said, this Chiefs' defense is – yeah, it's good. Um, I think – you know, certainly second half of the season, they've kind of rallied, but also with a, a slightly easier schedule. I think in a sense, it's it kind of flatters them slightly with some of the teams that they got to play down the stretch. But yes, they played well. Yes, they maybe at times are underappreciated. But still, this Dolphin Dolphins team in pretty much any other set of circumstances is not scoring only seven points, is not only netting 209 total yards, you know, you can be the biggest Dolphins doubter in the world, which I think both of us, for the most part, were in terms of not feeling like they could beat the very best teams. But one thing you could kind of guarantee from them was that they, they're they going to have a decent offensive output in most games. And so you can give the, the Chiefs definitely deserve some credit for the defensive performance, but the conditions suited them far more than they suited the Dolphins. And, you know, I think that was pretty telling uh, as the game wore on. But... You know, and, and honestly, if you're the Chiefs, you just have to dream that the remainder of their playoff games are in cold conditions. Obviously, the Super Bowl won't be in in indoor in an, in Vegas in an, in an arena, but they might get lucky that the remainder of their AFC slate of games could be in cold weather. And they are probably a team not only experienced in dealing with those conditions, but kind of built to thrive there because you then do get... Mahomes evading pressure in the backfield, able to pick up some extra yards on the ground. It brings in their kind of tight end heavy play, really suited to the idea of kind of chipping your way down the field. Their run game is pretty effective. You know, like everything starts to look better for them. It, it does cover up for most of their weaknesses. So obviously playing the Bills this weekend, I guess there's a strong chance that those might be cold and snowy conditions again. And, you know, we might find ourselves with a Chiefs team kind of skating their way to a Super Bowl <laughs> and then getting just absolutely blown out in the Super Bowl itself. But we'll see. Man, your disrespect for the Chiefs at times is is, is great. I, I mean, I didn't see anything in that performance that was them taking advantage and winning only because of the weather. I mean, they beat the Dolphins in every aspect. Their offense was better than the Dolphins' offense. Their defense was better than the Dolphins' defense. The fact that they were, like, nitpicking them. I mean, Rasheed Rice had, like, 120 yards, and he's a receiver. And he had, like, a 40-yard catch. He had, like, a 30-yard catch. Like, they weren't just dumping and dinking. You know, like, it's it's that was a pretty solid offensive performance. I thought they looked pretty good. Good. I'm glad you're being fooled. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm well, glad. Holmes looked spectacular. I'm glad that one performance is covered up for what we saw from the previous, basically, what, 12, 13 weeks of the regular season. But 
you know, was that just look, like regular season. That's right. Regular yeah. season. But no, yeah, it was, it was, you know, a good performance from them. There's no doubting that. I'm not trying to say they only won because of the weather, but I'll put it this way against a healthy Dolphins team on a neutral field. I don't think this Chiefs team wins, but certainly against that very weakened Dolphins team you know, in, in those conditions, they deserve to be favorites and they prove the point. You know, I think there's, and am I ruling out the fact that they can win? Did, wait, I'm playoff? confused though, because didn't they play on a neutral field in Germany against a healthy Dolphins team and beat the Dolphins? We kind of went over this. I, I don't <laughs> that's, that's literally what you just said. <laughs> The Dolphins should have won. the Dolphins should have won that game though. The Dolphins outplayed them for that game. I mean that's you know that was and yeah you you're gonna I know you love to say I you know how I do this the kind of but the reality is yeah I think we got to see what that matchup looked like and from an eye test perspective I know which team is better but you know we'll 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 have to see going forward I, I guess I my. I've not been a big believer in this Dolphins team at any point in this season, and I'm not a big believer in this Chiefs team. So the fact that one of them had to knock the other out doesn't mean that I've got to change my opinion on the other one. The Dolphins, the, ultimately, the Chiefs can prove me wrong more this weekend, a little bit, against the Bills. Although, I'm, But really, when they could prove me wrong is if they play a serious test like the Ravens. Because even this Bills team, and we'll probably get to that in our analysis of the Bills game, but I'm not. The Bills don't exactly wow me on a consistent basis either. On to the the next game, then I guess we. We don't want to mention uh, Andy Reid's mustache. <laughs> I no, I guess no. That was kind of <laughs> gross. I didn't actually like that they were. Here's how I hook it. What was that? That was frozen. Is that snot? <laughs> I mean, I, I guess so. As someone who has, you know, who has facial hair, who has a mustache. I mean, yeah, if you're in cold conditions, obviously your nose is running. I know. Like, it's not water. (laughs) That's what it's like. Like, where's water getting onto his mustache from? (laughs) Well, the only way, I guess, if he's drinking, then, you know, water will get onto your mustache. That's the one thing. So maybe it's a combination of both, but it's kind of gross. So gross. Like, when it's they gross. showed that, I was significantly grossed out. It's gross to one be zooming in on it and really giving us a close-up view of it. And honestly, it makes me judge him as a human being for to be he has to be aware of it and to yeah. not be like wiping it off or dealing with it. Like to just be like, Yeah, I'm just gonna let my like yeah. let my snot freeze on my mustache. Who doesn't? That was you know? almost as disgusting as Jackson Mahomes dancing on Sean Taylor's memorial. <laughs> <laughs> the other the only other talking point I'm gonna have from that game. To just call into question the NFL safety protocols and monitoring of players' health. The fact that Mahomes managed to have his helmet cracked on a play and then played the ensuing play, and then only after that was was kind of told that he had to change his helmet, how that is possible with all the cameras and the people who are supposed to be overseeing this, it blows my mind. It's crazy. It's it's great. And, and there's there's a few things after watching this weekend that I think really the NFL needs to change. And, and I, I don't understand why they're not. And maybe we can get them later. But the two main ones that I would like to discuss is one, how sometimes like upstairs, quote unquote, can quickly change a call 
without like a challenge, but then sometimes it doesn't. If that's what you're going to do, then I would say almost every time just have that happen then. Like why waste challenges on some of those things? Like some of those fumbles that were clearly fumbles, like upstairs saw that very quickly. Like that's annoying. And two, the fact that they still hold to this stupid only two challenge in today's NFL this year, when there were so many piss poor calls that you're going to like penalize a team for like questioning the ref's abilities to correctly call a play and then have both of their challenges be gone in the first quarter when they were right on one and probably kind of right on the second because what the ref said wasn't really what happened. They just got lucky that something else, and we'll talk about that at the Steelers game, but like that whole two challenge system is really fucking stupid too. But uh, yeah, I agree with you. I don't understand how there is this like upstairs booth that's watching with 50 screens but misses things like this. It's, I don't know what they're doing up there. Are they like just posting TikToks and not really watching the videos? Like it's a little crazy. Yeah. I mean, I get it that those, the kind of rule coming, the help coming from elsewhere when it's spotting the ball correctly or, you know, those really basic decisions, but it's a little bit of a gray area. Yeah. Some some catches can be ruled incomplete just with the help of that. And I get it. They're trying to kind of cover up for clear and obvious mistakes. So well, what's clear really... and obvious, right? Like... Yeah. But there there are times when it definitely makes things a little bit more complicated than it probably should be. Did you see the issue Mahomes had when he tried to put on the new helmet? Like that it was like they showed a few times like he was having trouble putting it on. It was because it was frozen solid, they said. So all the padding on the inside like wasn't moving because it was frozen <laughs> which is <I>, crazy <laughs> it's well it's just crazy because sometimes with these nfl teams like we're talking about you know multi-billion dollar companies yeah you'd think that where you're putting your helmet would be warmed you know you'd think all of these or you're keeping them inside something you know that they're not just sitting outside waiting to be used just in case like there's so many times where we see an element of almost kind of amateurism in this, you know, one of the biggest sporting leagues in the world. It's, uh, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. All right. And then that brings us on to the Sunday games where I guess in a sense, the first game, one of the bigger talking points, obviously we've already mentioned it, but the, the Cowboys no show against you know a decent opposition i mean the packers again the second half of the season from thanksgiving onwards i mean you know when the when they beat the lions on thanksgiving i think everyone viewed that as a kind of major upset and in, and as you look back on it historically right maybe we we kind of read too much into that in terms of the lions falling off from that moment onwards and in actual fact that wasn't as bad of a loss as it first looked and the Packers definitely played well I mean again kind of you know you wanted to give the Chiefs some credit I think there's no denying the fact that the you know the Packers just outplayed the Cowboys but just a complete no-show from the Cowboys in that game and I think more concerningly from a Cowboys perspective they definitely seem to basically quit in that basically the second quarter and also then you look at what was going on in the sidelines in terms of how CD Lamb was interacting with other players. I mean, and like the first series, that was so yeah. weird. 
Yeah. <laughs> and that doesn't seem like a team that believes much in itself or in, in the teammates. And definitely, you know, you have to assume that Mike McCarthy can not stay as head coach of the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, it was it was a, just a strange performance. You, you know, the Packers came out and then quickly scored that touchdown. Not quickly, I should say, but like drove down the field and didn't look like they weren't going to score. Um, and then the Cowboys got the ball back. Pretty kind of crappy drive. But then they stopped them the next drive. The, they stopped the Packers and then they got the ball back and you thought, okay, like – Maybe they got it out of their system, you know, like they were, whether they were nervous or just a little off, you know, they're going to get into a rhythm and then Dak through that stupid pick. And then it was like another touchdown and then another stalled drive and then another touchdown. And then it was it. like, it was, they just like, just kept digging the hole, digger and deep, deeper and deeper and deeper. It was Dak did not play well. Uh, he had a few sacks, like there was a few plays where, you know, they looked like they were seemingly driving and he either get sacked or just make a really poor throw. Uh, he did not look good in the backfield at all there. And those interceptions were bad. Yeah. No, I mean, they just – and it's just kind of amazing from a team that on offense looked so good over the course of the season. I mean, that you could have legitimately made the case for being the best offense in football. And I could have – imagine the scenario in which they lost this game but to me that was going to be them losing 45 40 you know where just their defense couldn't get a stop and just a kind of shootout and the fact that i mean i guess if you're being kind it, in the second half they kind of woke up and maybe if they'd played like they did in the second half the entire game then maybe the outcome would have been different but then if you're kind of viewing it from a packers perspective Obviously, the way they were playing was different. Uh, and, you know, you're also looking at a Cowboys team that was then playing with nothing to lose. So that changes your play calling and the decision making that you're having. And you couldn't have approached the game like that from the first snap. So, yeah, I mean, just undoubtedly the most disappointing performance on a wild card weekend that had plenty of teams who will be disappointed in their performances. The Cowboys are the standout. Yeah, even when they were down 27 to nothing, and then they scored at the end of the half to go 27 to 7, knowing they're getting the ball back, they got the ball back and drove down the field. And you, like, there was part of me that said, like, oh, here we go. Like, this is going to, this is going to happen. And then they like stalled out terribly. Like, what are they on? Like the 15 or something like that? They stalled out so bad and kicked that field goal. And then even then, you're kind of like 27 10. A lot of game left. They can do this. And then instantly, the Packers scored in like five plays. And then they get the ball back and they score a touchdown. He said, okay, now maybe. Now maybe this is it. And the Packers got the ball just like, I think that was like a two-play drive or something like that. That was like the, the, the bomb that they caught and ran the whole way. Like it's, there was, point, like I still was holding hope even when they were down like multiple scores. Like if they could just, stop the Packers once, but they didn't. I don't think they even stopped them at almost at all in the, in the second half until the Packers were just like, this is too much. Like we feel bad for you guys. We're just going to put on the brakes here. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean the scoreline in the end was kind to the Cowboys 
because that should have been a 30 point loss basically. And instead, because they managed to get these kind of garbage time touchdowns. And at one moment in time, obviously the Packers even had to bring their starters back in for that sort of final possession because they were worried enough that at a 16 point with a 16 point lead that if something stupid happened with their backups in, that they could suddenly be looking at a one score game with, you know, just over two minutes to go. So, you know, it, the score line, if you didn't watch the game at all, and then you just looked at the score, you might feel like, oh, well, the Cowboys probably played okay. They just, their yeah. defense was really bad and just no part of them played well. I mean, in that first half, that was a complete write-off. It looked like one of, it looked like you were watching one of the worst teams in the NFL play. You know, if you told me that was Panthers against the Packers, I would have believed you. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah, that that first half was awful, and you know, and you thought maybe that was just they just you know got caught off guard. The long halftime, you thought maybe they could come back, and then they just continue their defense just continued to let up big play after big play. That was just a complete meltdown. Yeah, it was. Yeah, but, but again, and the, Pack- the Packers looked good, but I I hesitate as to whether that was just a complete mental and physical collapse of the Cowboys and now going to San Fran against a team that I don't think will mentally collapse that quickly. (laughs) If at all, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think, I think they are a solid team, but that won't happen where even if the Niners went down two scores, I don't think at any point in time are they just like, fuck it, let's just, let's just not play anymore. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if necessarily that's exactly how the Cowboys reacted, but I, I do think like this is their defense. <laughs> this is a much sterner test for the Packers playing against San Francisco. Um, again, this is the kind of putting my Niners Nation hat officially on. If you wanted to have it's one, big on take- the whole podcast. <laughs> if you if you wanted to have one big takeaway from this weekend, right, is things have just fallen into place for the San Francisco 49ers. I mean, absolutely no excuses to not be in the Super Bowl now. Because basically every team that you would have thought maybe posed a real test to them on the NFC side of things, you know, the Cowboys being the biggest one because they really in the second half of the season it started to look really good. The Eagles, okay, second half of the season looked really bad, but you could have spun a narrative where they re, you know, kind of figured things out as the playoffs wore on. And now you're in a situation where, you know, their toughest test is the Lions. And I'm not trying to be dismissive of the Lions, but realistically, you know, I wouldn't say that's a Super Bowl caliber team. So for the 49ers, things have really fallen into place on the NFC side of things. Absolutely no excuses if this team is not playing in the Super Bowl. And even to a certain extent, you could say from the Ravens' perspective, things looking a little bit better. I mean, they too could say that no one really wowed them in that wild card weekend on the AFC side, but still the AFC now looks, it's interesting, right? Because when we were kind of discussing it a couple months ago, I said, well, the NFC is like a one point favorite to play against the AFC. And I would take the NFC every day of the week. And now going into the second round of the playoffs, (laughs) The AFC definitely looks stronger. Like I can, I only see one potential Super Bowl winner on the NFC side of things, whereas maybe you could say there are three potential Super Bowl winners on the AFC side of things. Yeah. 
then we got to the Sunday night, and that was, as you mentioned, Lions Rams. The Lions won 24-23. Did the best team win here? Um, I think people are being hard on the Lions. I think that like the takeaway from this is that the Rams maybe outplayed them or maybe are the better team just because you do see that kind of big playability that they have. But it kind of felt like, certainly in the first half, as if the Lions were sort of slightly manhandling the Rams at times. It, the Lions were always in position to kind of put this game to bed. You know, they got up into positions where they needed one more good drive, one more score to put themselves in a really comfortable position, and they were never able to do that. This was undoubtedly the best game of the weekend, obviously from a coming down, like going down to the wire, both teams playing, I think, relatively well within their own sort of abilities. I think the Lions deserve to win. Yeah, I think they deserve to win. Like, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't get out of this game, you know, like, oh, the Lions, they should not be in this next round. I do think they weren't the better team in this game. And maybe I am being slightly unfair on the fact that, to me, what decided this game was the Rams' complete inability to score a touchdown in the red zone. Uh, and maybe that's because the Lions' defense is just a great red zone defense. Maybe. But at the same time, I mean, you look at the – they had three major field goals um, that should have – you know, you, you would hope at least two of those have been touchdowns. They were first and goal from the six. They got zero yards from there, first and goal in the six. In the second half, they were first and 10 from the 11. So basically on the 10. They actually lost two yards on that drive. And then the last one, which was at the end of the game, they were first and goal. Sorry, first and 10 from the 13. And they got two yards on that drive. So three, three drives basically seemingly at, at the 10-yard line with zero yards in nine plays. That's terrible. And you're right. They are a big, they are a big play team, and maybe that's the only way they can score. But it just that's – I don't know if that's the Lions defense or if that's just them kind of just not having a, a great offensive strategy in the red zone. But to me, I think if one of those is a touchdown, this is a complete different game. I'm not Maybe. saying they win. I'm not saying they win, but I'm saying if they can get one of those, that changes the landscape. Where in the second half, the Lions didn't do anything the entire second half. No, and, and look, it's a weird game, right? Because Stafford had 367 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions. So that looks like a great game. But then, yeah, when you look at his redstone, red, redstone, red zone performance, he, you know, yeah, they were 0 for 3 in the red zone. Stafford was 2 for 7 in the red zone. He only had 7 yards inside the Lions' 20-yard line. The Rams only rushed the ball for 2 yards on, you know, the other 3 plays that they attempted within the red zone. So basically, they got 9 yards off 10 plays in the red zone. So, yeah, as the field got compressed, definitely you saw a difference. And so if you're trying to look at that from... The Lions getting lucky, yeah, you could say that the Rams on another day probably aren't that inefficient in the red zone, no matter how bad their red zone offense is and no matter how good the Lions' red zone defense is. Like that's, you know, statistically you wouldn't expect something to be as inefficient as that. 
But then you could also look and say that really the only thing driving the Rams offense for the most part was Puka Nakua because, you know, he was 181 yards from his nine passes. All of the other Rams receivers combined was 186 yards from 16. So really, you know, they are a big play offense. They do heavily rely on that fact. And, you know, maybe they're just not built properly to be able to punch the ball in when they do get into those red zone positions. This is the one game where you do feel like legitimately it could have gone either way. And I don't think you would have felt, I don't think the Lions could have felt too aggrieved had they lost the game. And I don't think the takeaway could have been that like the worst team won, certainly, because you can make a case for either one of these teams potentially being better. Ultimately, I think it was a pretty even matchup and the Lions just edged it. Uh, But, you know, I think over the course of the season, I feel like they deserve that a little bit more. And that doesn't matter, right? It's not uh, a factor or relevant. But, you know, it's a nice story, obviously, for them, a team that's been starved of playoff success for such a long time. And, you know, this Rams team, maybe fighters to deceive at times, just you know, those big plays can cover up for maybe not being quite as good as they sometimes might appear to be. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, I, I, I think you're right. You know, maybe the Lions overall had the more consistent season, so it's better to see them in the next round. I mean, the real takeaway from this is, do you think if they could go back in time do you think the Cowboys would now like that two-point conversion from the Cowboy from, from the Lions to stand? <laughs> like, are the Cowboys, you know, there's a very good chance that, that the Cowboys are still in the playoffs had they not had the benefit of a slightly controversial officiating decision in week 17 of the NFL regular season. Like, you know, we kind of talk about how these sort of weird sliding doors moments happen, but it might have been, they, they arguably maybe had the tougher playoff matchup as a result like it could turn out that this Packers team is better than the Rams I mean this Packers team lost to the Giants yeah (laughs) let's keep in mind that wasn't a long time ago that was like four weeks ago (laughs) oh no no no. look I am we talked we've spoken about it for the last few years really not trying to overreact to what we see in the wild card weekend because I think there's a big temptation to do that I'm not overreacting in terms of the Chiefs I'm not going to overreact in terms of what I saw from the Packers you know, those are, and I'm, we'll get on to it. I'm not going to overreact to what we saw from the Buccaneers either. But, you know, there are a few teams here who could try and trick us into thinking they are legitimately very good, and I'm not buying it quite yet. All right. Well, let's move on to Monday with the first game being the game that was pushed back because of the, the weather. And we can talk about the weather a little bit, but I, I want to start, this is what I want to say. The Bills in that game, I never for one second thought the Bills weren't going to win that game by like 10 or more points. But at the same time, I thought the Bills were going to blow that game. <laughs> like, And that this is what blows my mind about the Bills. Like I, I watched that game and I said, you know, like you watch the first few drives, you're like, oh, there is no way the Bills aren't going to completely manhandle the Steelers. And then you watch the game more and you think, are the Bills really going to blow this? Like, I'd have zero confidence right now. 
no matter how good they look, I, I don't, and I don't get it. I don't understand what it's like the opposite of the Eagles where we watch the Eagles win week after week in the beginning of the year. And we've all said like, I don't understand how they're winning these games. They don't look very good. Like, yeah, their record might be 10 and one, but they look like they're like a 500 team. The bills are like the opposite. They look like they look phenomenal, but yet somehow you think they're going to lose. <laughs> yeah. And had they not been the, not had they not benefited from that fast start and some Steelers errors early on, they might not have won that game. And I know it's going to pain hurt you to say, right. But I think the Steelers deserve some credit for not quitting in that game because if we compare it with what happened to the Cowboys and they almost found themselves in identical situations to a certain extent early on, the Steelers kept plugging away and kind of believing in themselves and never really got within touching distance. But I don't disagree with you. I never thought the Bills were going to lose, but there were a couple times when the when the Steelers got the ball back down two scores and you thought, man, if they score here... I don't know. Like there's, I don't know if I totally trust Josh Allen in this offense to not do something dumb when they get the ball back. And at the same time, as kind of inefficient as the Steelers offense is, I just feel like they might be able to put a drive together when they really need to, because this Bills defense, I don't totally trust it either. And I know you might highlight the, obviously the miss, the kind of situation that led to the Bills burning their, their challenges, but ultimately the Steelers got kind of screwed with a lot of those officiating decisions over the course of that game. I don't, I don't think you can say, I mean, there were a few calls, but again, this was a game where there were so many bad calls, like both ways. And I mean, had there not been challenges, people would be up in arms with how many terrible calls the bills got. And like, yeah, there were a few calls that went against the Steelers, but I don't ultimately think that puts them anywhere near winning this game. I okay, mean, I mean, let's we, one crucial one, right? Ignore the – I'm not even going to go down to the final play because I think final offensive play for the Steelers. I'll put it this way. I think the Bills get that call if roles are reversed. I do think there are certain situations where either home team or non – big team to a certain extent you don't get all the same calls but the the standout one and came at a crucial time was completely ignoring a lot offensive lineman just destroying a Steelers player yeah. with a hit to the back of the head that also helped push the Steelers for uh, the Bills for a crucial first down and you know that one if that call had been in, you know, if that had been enforced correctly, that was at a time of the game when that was when the Bills could have seen things start to slip away. And you don't want to highlight, you know, you get into that tendency of kind of highlighting, well, if this had happened, and you're right, because you could do it on the other side of things as well. But I do think the, the Steelers were slightly hosed by the officiating. Yeah, I just think that was just overall a bad officiating game. I mean, there was a lot of holds you saw both ways that just weren't called. Um, I don't know what was going on there, but I mean, at the same time, the Steelers get slightly lucky with the bills attempting a field goal in a situation. They probably should not have attempted that field goal and blocking it and taking it back and scoring and kind of jump starting on a, on a play. I don't know. I still don't know why the bills kicked that. Like everyone was saying, don't kick that. And they they still want to kick it. 
Um, and then that weird fumble. I I get the call, kind of, but I did not see any definitive view where it really hits his helmet. There are like ones where like it kind of looks like, oh yeah, there it looks like it hit his helmet, but you never saw like there was for some reason they didn't have the camera angle that clearly showed it like hits his helmet and bounces off on that fumble. Um, but this brought up to, you know, we have been discussing this before off podcast about like what the rules are with challenges, because like, say we, the one we were doing off podcast was say it was, it's like third and eight and you run the ball and you think you get the first down, but they spot you short. If you challenge the spot, if their spot was off, but still isn't enough to get you the first down, but enough to move it, are they allowed to move it and then you win your challenge? Or do you not because the challenge is technically the spot gets you a first down? And like, I, I still don't know what I think actually what the rule is, is like you challenge for the first down, not just that it's a bad spot. Like, I don't know if you can like, but you should be able to like, say it's like third and eight and you challenge it and say it should be third and six. Like that was a bad spot. So that's like one of them. And then this one is another one because the ref said that the ball was um, recovered out of bounds. And that's why it didn't go to the Bills. But that wasn't the case. It was that it actually hit the Steelers player. So they lose a challenge, even though they were right in that the ref was wrong in what he said. So that was kind of weird. Like I like some of those inconsistencies with challenges. I, I just wish they would kind of get rid of the challenge and just I would prefer like actually like a VAR and just everything go right to the to the booth. So I kind of agree with you, and I do think there's some areas with challenges. I don't I don't know what happens actually if you do challenge the spot of a ball and the spot is incorrect, but you don't get the first down. I don't know what happens there, whether you're you retain your challenge because technically the decision was wrong. I think you might, but I've never seen, but we've never seen them still. Cause there are times where they're still short of the line to gain, but the spot was definitely bad and we never see them slightly move the ball up. That never happens. No, where you, and where you do think teams where you, where that most commonly comes into play is like on goal line situations where there'll definitely be yes. times where they'll mark them and like, oh, it's it's first, it's third and goal from the one and a half yard line. And you look at like, they were inside the one. Yeah. And wouldn't you want to challenge this? Like, wouldn't you want to get suddenly only half a yard away? But obviously the risk reward is not worth it at that, at that point. But what I would say to you is, I don't want to get rid of challenges. Trying to take some some sort of learn something from other sports what i would like to see adopt maybe the cricket rule so in cricket when you challenge similar thing you've got depending on the format of the game usually you have two challenges if you challenge a decision and it is then shown that it was a sort of marginal call and but you stick with the on-field decision so like an LBW decision in cricket, where it's then umpire's call. So basically what they've said is, this is within the potential margin of error, but we stick with whatever the original call is. You stick with the call on the field, but you retain your review. And what I would like to see in the NFL is when they say, because you know they have 
the sort of call stands, the kind of weird wording that they have where they're like, we didn't make the wrong decision, but we haven't seen enough evidence. It's to, probably not right, but we don't have but, enough evidence to say we're wrong. And when they find themselves in that situation, I think it should be, we're sticking with the call on the field, but you haven't lost your review. Because basically technology, the technology you've tried to use has not been able to resolve this issue. And we're not going to punish you for that fact. Yeah. So we're not going to punish you because it just so happens that happened on the one area of the field where we don't have like, oh, sorry, the Steelers player just like threw his body in front of the camera at just the wrong time. We're pretty sure he fumbled it, but we don't know. That's a situation where it should say, we got to stick with the call on the field, but you get to keep your review. We're not going to punish you for probably doing the right yeah. thing. Yeah, and I also think they need to get rid of this. You have to get both right to get another. If you challenge a call and you get it right, keep you keep a challenge. You get two, and if you get both of them wrong, you're done. If you get one of them wrong, you got one left. Like this, it's such bullshit. Like I mean, the Bills, if they go and lose that game, I'd be rightfully pissed because I'm sure there probably would have been another play had they lost that game. That was a questionable call, and they've lost their challenges in the first quarter on two plays where the rest were wrong. And they just happened to get out of from a technicality that they weren't wrong. And then the Bills have no no challenges left when they were trying to like fix the errors of the refs. Like that's very unfair. Um, so yeah, I, and I agree with you. I think that's a pretty good idea to what you said as well. To like if a call stands and it's you know, don't they don't lose a challenge for challenging something that was probably they were right about, but they just can't prove it. I thought you were gonna say we bring in some of the cricket technology and we can watch the oh, sound of hits and things like that. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, maybe. That too. And, you know, the, all sorts of ball tracking technology yeah. that the NFL just kind of seems to refuse to use. Or what about what about for, like, roughing the passers? And, like, when they do – so, like, the other call, right, was the – Oh, like hotspot to see exactly where they made contact? Well, I was thinking, like, you know, like when, when, when Allen did that slide and the guy came over the top, it looked really bad. But it was kind of like Allen sold it and like threw his head back. Because then when you watch it in slow-mo, he actually never even touches his upper body. Like Allen just throws his head back. If they had a technology that could show you the force that like he actually hits his head or his upper body, if it's like below a threshold of force, they don't call it. And the same for like roughing the pass or like, like there are times where like they push the quarterback, but the quarterback embellishes it. If they could like calculate what the actual force that he gets pushed on if it hits the threshold. That'd be awesome. Does the the threshold change from one quarterback to another? Because the force required to push Josh Allen over is different from the force required to push. That's where Josh Allen is lucky because he's a mammoth of a man. He probably won't get knocked over with the same force that Bryce Young gets thrown out of the stadium with. (laughs) Now, I think that Josh Allen roughing the passer one is needs some – I'll say one other thing just on the before we move on actually on the reviews. The other thing that sucks about the current review system, right, is that the reviews become more and more valuable as the game kind of presses on, right? Like overturning a decision late in the fourth quarter is much more important than overturning a decision in the first quarter. And at the same time, your timeouts become more and more valuable as the game pushes on. So you find yourself in this weird situation where both wanting to get the correct decision is more important, but the thing that you're going to risk losing becomes worth more. And I don't know exactly how to solve that, but it kind of needs to be solved too, because your teams are sometimes knowingly turning down a potential big review because they think, well, we're losing and we need these three timeouts because 
you know, we can't burn one now and then potentially just end up finding themselves like the, the Rams did, right, in a situation where they needlessly kind of burned timeouts and then didn't have them when they really needed them. On to that, Josh Allen, the roughing the passer. Well, not roughing the passer. Uh, roughing uh, the slide. Yeah, unnecessary roughness. Hit. Or, yeah. It's a tough one, right? Because obviously you have the him kind of pretending to slide on his 52-yard touchdown or whatever I didn't is. really see that as much as other people. Like people, Some people were like up in arms like – it was nowhere near the Kenny Pickett fake slide where Pickett literally like is three quarters down into a slide and pops up. Like he kind of, I thought he kind of was just, he's so big that it's tough for his body to move. <laughs> uh, here's where the difference is. I agree with you. Like Pickett was definitely intentionally doing a fake slide. I don't think Josh Allen was, but I think Josh Allen found himself in a position of like, uh Oh, two defensive players coming towards me. And for a moment, thought I'm going to slide, slowed his body down and kind of yeah. started the process and then went, no, 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 I can keep going. So it's not like he was trying to game the system, but what that definitely did to the Steelers defenders that were there was they definitely stopped. Like they were definitely two players in a position there to make a tackle who that time around didn't and it ends up in a touchdown. And I can understand walking to the sideline and then being told next time you fucking hit him. Because we can't have, you know, like, what are you supposed to do? Like, we find ourselves in this unfortunate situation, right? Where, and the inconsistency, like, you have Josh Allen, who's a definite threat with his legs, who you have those, and then that's a 15-yard penalty. And then you compare and contrast that with the Flacco one against the Texans, where, okay, you can make the argument that the guy initiated his tackle attempt before Flacco started sliding. It's super marginal, but... You can make the case, but are you telling me that to tackle Joe Flacco, you need to be throwing yourself head on in a downward trajectory towards his ankle? Like, you can't tell me that that guy, in a sense, didn't know that the slide was starting from the angle that he's taking to attempt the tackle. And those inconsistencies, again, they're just a killer. But yeah, and that's what I don't have as much sympathy for the defensive players as other people do, because when you watch the late hits they're getting, it's not as if they're like trying to tackle and then as they're sliding, like the guy goes underneath their tackle and then they happen to like hit their head. Almost every time it's a guy diving down towards the ground and you are not tackling, especially a quarterback. You can maybe say Josh Allen, you're going to take his legs out, but every other quarterback in the NFL, you're not trying to like dive and take out his ankles on a tackle. You're just going to wrap them up straight up. So this whole thing of like, he was already initiating a tackle. Really? Because I didn't don't see many players initiating a tackle by throwing their shoulder into the ground. Like they're clearly trying yeah. to do it purposefully. And like, whatever, like they want to do that, they want to do that, but like, you're going to get called. So, the, and that's kind of where, yeah, like I, I, I don't agree with the defensive logic of like, this isn't fair. <laughs> no, yeah, it's a tough one. And as I said, that Joe Flacco one, by the book, it's the right call. So I'm not saying anything was done incorrectly because if you do the time frame, the slide now you then start to get into was like Flacco slowing down. Does the defensive player basically know the slide starting also it's Joe Flacco. Like at what point is the defense defensive player almost assuming that the slide is going to start because it's like Joe Flacco is not going to try and run through contact here. So I'm definitely getting the slide, but yeah, 
next time show me a player trying to make an open field tackle against Joe Flacco, who tries to head first dive into his ankles as the way that he thinks is the yeah. most efficient way to take down a somewhat athletic 39 year old. Like that's, I don't think that's going to be. Are you saying idea. somewhat athletic compared to just the general population? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Not compared to NFL players. I mean, okay. for a 39 year old, He's somewhat athletic. For a 39-year-old, they pulled off a couch. He is above average athleticism. Yeah. And then I guess wrap things up then with the last game. We can kind of pat ourselves on the back a little bit. We doubted the Eagles all season long, although both of us thought that they would win this wildcard game. And in a sense, we got to see everything that we thought was wrong with the Eagles over the course of this season compiled into a single game their defense wasn't great their offense was awful they looked like the players quit as well Hertz didn't look like he had the trust of the team around him I mean he was yeah again so on the sidelines players talking to him he looked just kind of like he looked like a zombie what was that safety play what was his what was his goal there was he just gonna try and run around Madden style for 20 minutes just throw the fucking yeah, ball away, dude. <laughs> you clearly were outside the pocket. Just throw it away. And again, the thing with that Eagles team is, as bad as they were, when they got that, when they scored that touchdown to get it to 16-9, I thought, okay, they're going to win. Now, admittedly, when they failed on the two-point conversion, which again, yeah. if you want to defend them, missed face mask call, I mean, just a player just trying to rip Jalen Hurts' head off <laughs> to, to stop him from getting into the end zone. That's Bucks have great I, success stopping that play too. But you know that felt like a little bit of a momentum shifter. Mm-hmm. But still, I thought, okay, the Eagles are going to win. Like this is going to be annoying because we're going to once again look at the situation where they didn't play well, where they probably should have lost, and they're going to end up winning by three points or seven points, and you know. And then annoyingly, they're probably going to win. Like We're going to end up with the Eagles in the Super Bowl, even though I don't think they're particularly good. And then just the wheels came off in the yeah. final, in the second half. Yeah. And and again, this is another game where we're talking about the losing team. You know, the Bucks played well. And they played well despite Mike Evans probably having one of the worst games I've ever seen him play. At three drops, one was a, a easy touchdown drop. Um, so... And he wasn't the only one. I think there was. I think they had like five or six drops that game. I mean, they could have Baker Mayfield put up three thirty-seven. He could have put up four thirty-seven the way he was slinging it. Uh, I mean, they were in total control of that game. And if it weren't for those drops, I think this game would have been. They could have been in the forties and fifties, even. You know, like this could have been an absolute thromping. So I, I they played really well, surprisingly well. Uh, I did not think they would come out and manhandle the Eagles like that. And, you know, you're right. Maybe we should have expected that, and maybe we're still so dumb for thinking that playoffs would change that. Um, They had a negative 90-point differential in their last seven games, the Eagles. I mean, this is a team that is just imploded. Um, And nothing makes me happier than seeing Sirianni. You know, it never gets old when I see that Sirianni clip of him coming down the Chiefs tunnel and doing the, uh, like, screaming at the fans. And then everyone, everything, it's like, he's been 
one and X since that game. You know, like every week it just, the number keeps adding up higher and higher. And I, I just love seeing it every time. And yeah, it was, I guess my question to you, do you feel vindicated with Baker's performance here? I feel vindicated in a sense from both Baker's performance and the Eagles' performance. Like, even though I somehow, I, my predictions for the game itself are completely wrong. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I feel like we got to see, again, why you'd want Baker Mayfield as a playoff quarterback. Like, you can just tell, it's kind of meaningless, right? But you can tell how much he cares, how, like, zoned in he is. And again, his willingness to, he would have run through a wall at some point if he needed to to help the Bucks win that game. He played extremely well. You're right. I mean, they had so many drops. That game could have been a complete, I mean, it was a blowout anyway, but it could have been an even larger blowout had they not had those. But yeah, he played well. Did you hear the story from Joe Buck about Baker? Uh, About, so, so when he went to Car like he was in Carolina and apparently he was like, just completely demoralized and, you know, just wasn't being himself, wasn't playing well. And then he took the end of last season and went to the Rams. And McVeigh supposedly pulled him aside and they had like a big talk and kind of, you know, Baker said, I don't know what's going on, blah, blah. And McVeigh told him, you're a passionate guy and that's what makes you great. You have to love the game because that's what sets you apart. And that's what makes you the great player you are, is that you have that love and that intensity for the game that a lot of other players don't have. And you need to find that again. And he said that was like the switch that like turned him back on to being like, I need to be who I am and get excited about playing. And I mean, it looks like you're right. Like it definitely looks like this year. He looks like a different player. He looks like how he was at Oklahoma this year versus when he was on the Panthers, when it was like, I've got to play another week here in Carolina. You you know, he like, he will run through a wall. He'll do anything right now. It's, 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 it's a total 180. Yes. But then going back to the point I made earlier to not wanting to overreact to wildcard weekend performances, we're one week removed from this team scoring nine points against the Panthers. So, you know, like, yes, they played extremely well, I just don't know, you know, the the difference between very good teams in the NFL and okay teams is consistency, right? It's not ability most of the time. And we saw probably the very best of the Buccaneers up against the very worst of the Eagles. And I don't, there's nothing that makes me think we're going to see the very best of the Buccaneers next weekend. But it was a very good performance. They deserve their win. I think they the most impressive performance of the weekend in terms of really making me think twice about how I thought about them. The Packers are really impressive, but they had been so good over the second half of the season that this was just sort of confirming some of what we'd seen from them so far. Whereas this was really showing that, Hey, if the Buccaneers, if things go their way, they can be a difficult team to beat in the playoffs versus everyone wants to play the Buccaneers in the playoffs. It's the team that, lucky to even be there in the first place yeah and then so i mean that wraps up the wild card weekend and going into next week you have in order the saturday early game is houston baltimore and then the saturday late game is green bay san fran so both the one seeds playing on saturday and then sunday you have the early game is bucks detroit and then the sunday night game which i think is the right move to put this as a kind of marquee matchup being the Chiefs 
versus the Bills, but this time at Buffalo. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not the best slate of games for the divisional round, right? But it's pretty good. And yeah, the Chiefs-Bills game is the standout. We'll obviously do our f- full preview and predictions on the next episode. But yeah, it's it's a decent... There's, well, I'm sure you'll include them in the in the previews, but there's some good storylines heading yep. into these various games. But we're maybe denied some of the kind of star power matchups that we were hoping for as a result of some teams underperforming. Yeah. And actually, Eddie, I'm going to give you an early storyline as a little bit of a, a preview spoiler here, and it's going to lead into a little trivia. So this year in the playoffs, there is not one quarterback remaining in the divisional round that is 30 years or older. Everyone is under 30 years of age. Can you put the eight remaining quarterbacks in order of their age. Uh, do I go it oldest to youngest? It is difficult. You can do whatever you want. It is difficult. There are a, a clump at the top. So I'll go. I'll go youngest to oldest. I guess. Okay. I'm. I'm going to assume C.J. Stroud is the youngest. C.J. Stroud, 22 years old. Now it gets a little tricky <laughs> to know who's second. Not really. I mean. Why not really? You should, I, I mean, I just think, you know, if you just think of basics like years in league. <laughs> yeah, but haven't Purdy and Love been in the league for the same amount of time? No, Purdy was a rookie last year. This is Love's third year. Oh. Okay, so Purdy. Yep, Purdy, 24. Uh, Love. Love, 25. Now it gets now tough because I think they're going to be pretty close, all the remaining ones, I think. Yeah. I'm going to say the oldest. I'm going to skip now. Okay. Now work okay. my way back okay. down. I think the oldest is Mahomes. Not the oldest. Is it Lamar? <laughs> Lamar, not the oldest. <laughs> Goff? Goff is the oldest. 29 years old. Is Mahomes the second oldest? Mahomes is third oldest at tw- 28. Is There's Lamar another... the second oldest? No. <laughs> Baker Mayfield? Yes. Okay. I'll put you out of your misery. <laughs> From youngest to oldest, CJ Stroud, Brock Purdy, Jordan Love, Lamar Jackson, still only 27 years old. That's like the crazy one because he came out so early and started so early. Next is Josh Allen, also 27 years old. Patrick Mahomes, 28. Baker Mayfield, an older 28. And Jared Goff, 29. So we're yeah. going into a divisional round where Baker Mayfield is the second oldest quarterback in the round, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, it'd be interesting to order them in terms of number of playoff appearances, right? Because you then get really interesting because like Purdy would, would kind of, based off the fact that he's played, what, two playoff games, would suddenly be more experienced than some of them. Like, I mean, Baker... How many playoff games has Baker played now? He's played a couple, right? He's played a few. Like, but that would be interesting too. Anyway, yeah, it should be should be an interesting slate of games. In other NFL news, kind of also taking us into a different sport a little bit. Well, wait, wait. Let's let's finish. Uh, I have one more thing because I know what you're going to transition to already. Do you? Yeah, I do. 
But before we get on to the rugby turned NFL players, <laughs> we have a lot of coaches that have been fired and a lot of coaches that are still available and interviewing. The latest one being the Falcons have announced that they've interviewed Bill Belichick. But out of all the teams that just lost in this round, who should be firing their coach? And I think the main ones, obviously, to talk about are Dallas with McCarthy and the Eagles with Sirianni. I think the Eagles should 100% fire Sirianni based off the fact that to me. Uh, and Tomlin. Like, Let me throw Tomlin in there. <laughs> Tomlin I would keep. Can no, never he... win a playoff game anymore. <laughs> I mean, that was tough, right? In the end, if you were being – I think the honest assessment is the Steelers probably played better in that playoff game than most neutrals expected. And – their team isn't that really overperform year on year. Now, if you wanted to really be like, if you're running the Steelers, part of you might say Tomlin is hurting us in the long run because we keep overperforming. We're never bottoming out. And so we're never getting the draft picks we need to build a really good team. And, and so we're never getting of, to the top. They never yeah. have a Super Bowl contending team, but they never have a top five draft pick contending team. Yeah. And the way American sports work, you need to have, a horrific season or two to be able to start that rebuild process or an incredible amount of luck in terms of drafting a quarterback like the Eagles or yeah or a free agent landing in the right spot somehow and obviously I don't think Pittsburgh the most desirable free agent I agree location. with you I don't think Tomlin should get fired but to me I think Tomlin and Belichick were two coaches who are in a position where they should be able to stay if I own that team I would say as long as you want this job Barring some horrific scandal, this is your job for as long as you want it. Like that's the sign I want to have within my organization is that we acknowledge what someone has contributed to our success and we stick with them as a result of that. Sirianni, I would fire immediately. I think he's lost that team. I think when you look at everything that was going on in those final few weeks, I think if you look at the way he handles the pressure, I'm just not, I'm not convinced by him at all. So with the caliber of free agent head coaches that are available, which is the other thing you have to factor in, right? Is that right now, you know, you can go out and get a very good head coach. Because often the question is like, who are you replacing them with? And right now you have actually several coaches to choose from. I would fire Sirianni immediately. I mean, this is a 34 and 17 record in the regular season and made it to the Super Bowl last year. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could argue that 34 and 17 with the team that he has is actually not that amazing. So I'm not that wild. He's been really hurt in a sense by what their record is down the stretch of this regular season because he yeah. was looking at probably having like a 40 and 12 record there instead or yeah. whatever. But uh, I would fire Sirianni. Mike McCarthy, I think, their, I think their playoff performance was more of an aberration than what we saw from the Eagles. But ultimately, I've never been the biggest Mike McCarthy fan. So again, with the caliber, if I'm Jerry Jones with the caliber of head coaches available, I would fire Mike McCarthy. But I think he's a little bit more hard done by than Sirianni. I think Sirianni, things have gone seriously wrong over the course of this season. Mike McCarthy, I think that was one really bad playoff performance. Yeah. I kind of agree with you on both of those. And especially when you say with the caliber out there. My concern is then you're getting to a point where, I mean, the caliber is what? Two phenomenal coaches, right? 
in Belichick. And I think I, I would put Vrabel up there as a very, very and, good coach. And the possibility of Pete Carroll. And, and I know he's, he's technically yeah. seemingly still with the Seahawks, but definitely if you're offering him a head coach job, he's coming. But there are a lot of open spots. And what happens if you, let's say, fire McCarthy with the hope of getting Vrabel, but instead you're stuck with, I don't know, some up-and-coming offensive coordinator who stalls out even worse? You know, like it's it's a little bit of a risk because what's – I don't understand truly why everyone says the Falcons are a great fit for Belichick. I get the division isn't great. But he's kind of going into the exact same scenario he's in with the Pats, where he doesn't have a good QB, and he has a, a decent defense, but nothing great. In in a, the difference is it's it's an easier division. But like, if I'm Belichick, I think I've got to be choosing the Cowboys or the Eagles from a roster standpoint over the Falcons. Well, maybe you don't want to be with maybe you don't want to be with Jerry Jones. Maybe that's why I don't go to the Cowboys. Yeah, so it's interesting because I would have thought that they are not a good match just because the level of control that Bill Belichick likes to have and then the level of control that Jerry Jones yeah, likes to have. exactly. So they feel kind of incompatible from an ownership head coach standpoint. But maybe Belichick is realizing that as he's getting older, both he can't have that level of control and also he just can't manage it, that you know he has to focus his time more efficiently. So potentially going into this next role, he is considering that fact. If you're Belichick and you are definitely chasing whether or not he would want to admit it, this wins record, you need to go somewhere where, because I mean, what again, optimistically, three, four more seasons, almost all of those have to be pretty good seasons. So, and ideally you want to win a Super Bowl in a three-year window. So you really need to be going somewhere where they're already definitely playoff caliber. I think... I would go to, if I were Bill Belichick and every job was offered to me, I would go to the Cowboys because I think defensively they're really good, which leans into his strengths. He could turn them into a really great defense. You have a quarterback who I think is good enough to win a Super Bowl, if, even if I don't think that Prescott is like really elite. And with a couple of free agent signings or whatever, you could have a very, very good team. Uh, we so forgot about Harbaugh, actually. And Har yeah, but he's trash. I wouldn't want to touch him. <laughs> who I think most people are predicting he might go to the Chargers because he's a QB coach, got a good QB, and he's a pretty boy, so he'll love the L.A. scene. Yeah, and I think that's the other thing to factor in when you're saying you could end up without – you could miss out on Vrabel, you could miss out on Belichick, you could miss out on Harbaugh. But even then, assuming if you were the Cowboys right now and you'd think, well, we're probably going to fire Mike McCarthy, I bet you the Eagles are also going to fire Sirianni. You then have to add two more head coaches into the mix. Okay, they're not going to rehire Mike McCarthy. They might hire. They might hire Sirianni. Oh my you know? god! So you, so you could still, if you have any faith in, and if you're the Eagles, and if you think Mike McCarthy is a good head coach, and you're also going to think, well, probably Mike McCarthy is also going to end up being a, a possibility here as well. And that's before, you know, other chips may still fall elsewhere. I wouldn't be. Wouldn't my mind wouldn't be blown if, you know, with Khan and the Jacksonville Jags, if they thought. Hey, let's push the boat out here and get a really good head coach, Doug Peterson. Thanks. Do they do they do the Eagles move and go from Peterson to Sirianni? <laughs> that would be cool. I mean, I mean, if I were in, again, if I were in charge of the Jags, I would also be looking at the head coaches available and thinking, with what I have in place, like 
Doug Peterson maybe had a lucky Super Bowl year, and aside from that, he doesn't look too great in terms of how he's been as a head coach. Let's try and bring in someone who can really turn things around here. But yeah, I think I would Tomlin job for life, and the other two fired. But okay, you teased it, and yeah, the news coming out, breaking news. I think came out a couple of hours ago. Is that uh, well in anticipation of the the Six Nations squads being released, right? Exactly. Yeah, and that is that uh, Louis Reese Samet, one of Wales's better players, I suppose, certainly one of their more exciting young prospects, has made the announcement that he will be uh, leaving rugby to try and pursue a career in the NFL. He's going to go into the NFL International Pathways program that they have that where they bring, they sort of get players in from around the world and try and train them for, sort of prepare them for the NFL draft. And then they then enter the draft. If they do get drafted, then that's great. If they don't, they're then available as undrafted free agents. Um, it'll be interesting to see. He obviously has no American football experience. Historically speaking, right? Mixed mixed results when it comes to rugby players trying to uh, adapt to the NFL for the most part for certainly for position players, I'd say basically no successes um, from, you know, the standout obviously at the Eagles in terms of alignment. But then when you get a physical freak who's six foot eight and, you know, super fast, it's not surprising to think that they can transition to being uh, a decent NFL player. So he's so he's six three, two hundred pounds, um, yeah. and his uh, he's incredibly fast. So uh, he was clocked last year, or maybe earlier this year, going twenty four point two miles per hour on a on a on a play. Whereas Tyreek's top speed this year was twenty three point two four. Now I don't like that comparison, and it's annoying where they're like he's faster than Tyreek. Tyreek's in pads and a helmet, you know, like he's got like, he's got some significant weight and, and uh, different baggage on him there. So let's just say though, someone who could be as fast as Tyreek Hill on the field, but is 6'3", 200. He's fast. Yeah. He's legitimately fast. Uh, I think he's widely considered to be like the third fastest player in international rugby. So he does have sort of legitimate sprint speed. Um. But I think his, and yeah, going into this, I think they said today he was covering, it's like 10.8 meters per second is sort of what he says his speed is at. Um, for comparison, I think uh, Usain Bolt's like 10.4 something meters per second. So, you know, difficult to kind of visualize what that looks like in terms of speed and quickness, but he's legitimately fast. Now, I think the storyline definitely, if he makes the NFL, will be rugby superstar ditches rugby to go to the NFL and Reese Zammett like definitely burst onto the scene and was very, it was kind of this exciting prospect for Wales. His career has kind of stalled a little bit in rugby. He's now, he's had some injury issues. He's not an absolute certainty to be starting uh, for Wales, you know, even if he were available. So I think the storyline, how this gets spun in different areas is interesting um obviously he can make far more money playing in the nfl than he can in rugby even being a sort of middle of the road nfl player would be 
astronomically more money than he can make as a superstar in rugby. And he's not going to be a superstar in rugby. So you can get why the decision makes sense. He claims, I mean, he said part of his reason for doing this is that he grew up loving the NFL. His dad played American football. So I guess compared to some players who've maybe tried to make this transition, you'd at least hope that he's coming into this with a full understanding of the sport, you know, not needing to be taught the nuances of the rules and maybe some of the tactics and techniques. And, but I mean, I, what, I assume he's going to be a, try and be a wide receiver. Like I can't see what other position he could possibly be. I mean, but he's small. Yeah. I mean, the issue is, I think optimally a running back would be a, a better transition because there's a lot more to a wide receiver than just speed, right? I mean, like route running is a huge is a huge issue, and then also just ability to catch the ball in a very different way than you're used to catching it in rugby. Whereas as a running back, it's a very similar style of kind of getting like a short pitch or a handoff and then just flying, you know, down the sidelines is a little easier, I think, of a transition than a, than a receiver and saying like, you know, run, run a skinny post route, you know, and and the 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 technique and the footing in that is very very different than rugby so and you have uh christian wade right was he was supposed like the fastest ever recorded rugby player who then transitioned and played for the bills and was a running back yeah and he i mean re-examined a better rugby certainly a better prospect wade was leading the premiership in try scoring but so he'd never really established himself as an international rugby player reese Samet at least like a legitimate international rugby player so you know you could say and you know he's only 22 years old so you could look into this you know and say basically this is like a player coming out of college but who's been in a professional sporting environment for a longer period of time there's a lot of positives to take away from that but he's he's going to have to put on a lot of weight to play. Like he's a, you know, a pretty thin person from a, it's, it's difficult to imagine what his physique will need to look like. Certainly to be a running back, he's going to have to put on a ton of mass, which is then going to sacrifice some speed as a wide receiver. Maybe that yeah. body, that transition wouldn't have to be quite as extreme, but you're right. I mean, there's, he's never had to, you know, worry about catching a ball, the kind of jumping up Coming and catching towards a ball and getting, and getting hit while he's doing it. You know, there's a lot of things, things change very, you know, it, you're getting tackled from 360 degrees, which in rugby, typically you're not, you know, like the challenges are always coming from in front of you, possibly maybe to the side, unless you've broken in front of someone, you're not getting tackled from behind. You're not taking hits in the same way. So yeah, it's, it's, I would be surprised if he managed to establish himself. Someone's going to take a chance because definitely physically he's impressive enough that someone's going to say, let's put him on the practice squad. Let's see what he has. We'll hold it, you know, for a couple of years and financially for him, that might be still better than whatever he's earning (laughs) playing rugby. So, but I think there's a very good chance three years from now we see Reese Samet playing rugby again. Now, Eddie, I, I, I want to bring something and, and get your opinion on it. Um, I hate to discuss the Live Golf Tour. So this is Live Adjacent. And this is with someone that I think you genuinely respect 
and what your opinion is. And that's Rafi Nadal, who now is going to be the ambassador for the Saudi Tennis Federation. Um, so he's going to have a new role, which includes promoting tennis in Saudi Arabia and plans to have a Rafa Nadal Academy there. And this obviously is just another step in the Saudis just kind of getting their hands into every major sport to eventually kind of control and run the sport. And what, what's, what, how do you feel about Nadal being the one to do this? I don't love it. You know, I think ultimately, right, look, go and make your money. I mean, I don't think Rafael Nadal needs money. He should have already made more than enough money by now to be set for his lifetime, his children's lifetime, his grandchildren's lifetime. And that's without factoring in, he has plenty of channels through which he can continue to make money for the rest of his life. But definitely, if you're telling me offers were on the table were equal, he could either have a, a an academy in Spain or an academy in Saudi Arabia. He's not choosing Saudi Arabia, right? So money is definitely the determining factor. It's a country that has basically no history within the sport. I mean, yes, tournaments get played there, but it's not as if we've seen, you know, consistently professional tennis players coming out of Saudi Arabia or even in the Middle East. I don't know exactly how popular tennis is as a sport among young people in the Middle East, aside from within the sort of ultra wealthy groups. Um, and so, yeah, I'm sure he'll say he wants to grow the sport and that, you know, Spain doesn't need another person there teaching tennis, but maybe Saudi Arabia does. Uh, I can't help but be cynical. And it's a shame. Like, it's a shame um, when people don't really need the money to be thinking that they're not considering exactly where the money is coming from or the other things that they are tacitly endorsing through the decision to be a face kind of ambassador for that country. Yeah. It bothers me if I were, I'm not, a, I'm not, it doesn't make me, it doesn't surprise me really because ultimately all of these players are just guns for hire. Right. But yeah, I think it's not a decision you can be proud of, put it that way. I think that's the thing that would be a shame as someone who's achieved so much throughout his life and his career, so many things to be incredibly proud of. I don't think this would make the list of all oh, things I'm so proud I've done in my first, you know, however, 36 year old, 37 years old. Yeah. And it's slightly frustrating that all of the people who are doing this will try and hide behind the spin of, I'm just trying to promote the sport that I love to uh, a place that hasn't had the level of exposure to the sport. And I just want to really grow the sport. And it's like, you can do that and not take $150 million from the Saudis to do that. I mean, one, there are a lot of other places besides Saudi Arabia that you can grow the sport. But two, if you're really that invested in it, then you could do that without the money. <laughs> yeah, both are true. And, in, and, and you could probably get some money from Saudi Arabia even potentially to do it elsewhere. You know, if, if, <laughs> If Nadal was so committed to the idea of growing tennis or giving giving something back or, you know, really doing something with grassroots tennis in developing countries or places where tennis is not as big of a sport as it could be, I'm sure he would there be plenty of people willing to invest in that, you know, and you're right. There are better places to go. You could go to places in South America that definitely have a passion for tennis, but don't have the facilities or the means to tr develop great tennis players. You could go to Asia. 
where again, there's definitely a, a larger ter- tennis heritage. He could go to Africa, a country that as of yet really ignored from a tennis perspective, you know, a country that basically doesn't have very many professional tennis tournaments where the tennis world basically completely overlooks both in terms of players being developed and them visiting, you know, that would be the place you could make the strongest argument for any of these tennis players. If your focus is on growing the sport, there are places out there where you could do it really efficiently and where there'd be a lot of sense for why you chose that location. Saudi Arabia is not that. And I can't help if I want to even be more cynical, right? There's only two, probably there's three types of people who are going to be involved then in the Nadal Academy. It's going to be, Prospects that they're handpicking from around the world who they're then flying into Saudi Arabia, which Saudi Arabia will love because probably at some point at moment in time, those players will represent Saudi Arabia, even though they were born in Spain or born in Brazil or born wherever. So they'll end up, Saudi will sort of start to have a tennis culture. There'll be ultra wealthy kids whose parents are just playing for them, paying for them to be in the Rafael Nadal Academy, complete waste of time from his perspective in terms of developing the game of tennis. And then probably a handful of, sort of local kids who they give, you know, some kind of little sponsorship deal to, to try and, so they can, you know, make the numbers look better of like, no, 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 look, the PR campaign. Yeah. We took some kids from underprivileged areas in Saudi Arabia and we, you know, gave them tennis rackets and tennis shoes. So, oh yeah. But who's that kid coming in the Rolls Royce over there? I don't worry about that kid. (laughs) Yeah. And how many, how many, how many laborers died building the academy? You know, like too far, Eddie, too far. <laughs> no, it's not too far though. You know, it's, it's all, it's, it's, it's a shame. It's a shame, but not surprising, but a shame. And I guess we can do a quick catch up on European football very briefly. Obviously we spoke about maybe the standout game of the weekend in the Premier League was uh, Newcastle against Manchester City. It didn't disappoint. Delivered five very good goals, an exciting match in which, you know, City took the lead, Newcastle went 2-1 up, City equalized and then scored a 91st minute winner. The quality of all of the goals was really outstanding. Um, I think that the main talking point has to be Kevin De Bruyne and like, yeah, Kevin De Bruyne came on. Instant impact that he makes. Came on, scored a goal, scored a nice goal, and then also a great assist. I mean, Otto Bob also deserves some credit. Really nice touch to control the ball and the composure he showed um, to score that winning goal. But uh, yeah, I mean, that team with De Bruyne back. And you just look at the way they controlled that match. I know, you know, it's easy to look take away from that and think, well, Newcastle are missing a lot of players. And on another, you know, they were 2-1 up not that long to go and certainly maybe they should have deserved the draw being two all going into injury time but the reality is they scored two very good goals against the run of play back you know within minutes of each other the second half did absolutely i mean i don't know if they really got into the city half at all they i i think i mean i think the possession statistic they had I think 27% possession over the course of the match second half they must have had 15% possession i mean they the only time they had the ball was basically a goal kick. Aside from that, they never really had it. <laughs> yeah. So um, I don't think there's, you know, yes, they're suffering from injuries and they, they're not in a position to address that because of the financial fair play. You know, it's come out that they are 
they cannot sign players either unless they want the sort of fines that are being handled handed out to teams to also be, find their way to St. James's Park. But City look kind of unstoppable now as far as winning the Premier League is concerned. I, mean, I just it feels like a foregone conclusion at this point. I guess the other big matchup you had, uh, big in terms of you know players and teams and not necessarily standings, was uh, Spurs, Manchester United, that ended in a 2-2 draw. So another four goals. Yeah, and in a sense, we got to see what it kind of confirmed what we thought of both of those teams going into it. I mean, Spurs are definitely missing their best players and probably had they had a full-strength team would have won that. But we saw, you know, Spurs, who very good at attacking, but can concede goals, and also really committed to going forward. They could have easily, they kind of bossed that game in the second half. And then United, who, I don't know, you kind of walk away from him not being super impressed. But then at the end of the day, that's, you know, a point against Spurs, which isn't the worst result in the world. So, you know, they're, they're kind of having this strangely decent season without being particularly good. I don't know if I'd call sitting seventh in the in the table decent. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, when you really think about it, right? Like, best case scenario for them this season was fourth, probably. You know, if you were doing a honest, unbiased prediction, and so they're not that far off there. You know, they're not. The season isn't as bad as sometimes people want to make it look out. I think that the thing that makes it look bad is that I don't see how it really radically improves. Like I don't, they're not like, it doesn't feel, whereas with Spurs, it feels like they are building something. Like you can see things are in place that if they get more time to bring new players in, they can build the right squad. You see a vision. I don't see a vision with Manchester United. I just see as if they're trying to do okay. People are trying to keep their jobs. Crazy to think we're already in the back half of the season for the Premier League. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that was the halfway mark, basically, of the season. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, not too long ago. And as I said, it looks like another another title win for City, really. All right, I guess that pretty much wraps up sport. Maybe we'll probably talk a little bit more tennis over the next couple of weeks with the Australian Open being underway. But any non-sporting events to talk about? Uh no, I think we can save. I've been watching some shows that are average at best <laughs> that we can discuss uh, when we have some more time on the next podcast, maybe as we preview the divisional round of the NFL playoffs. Sounds good. All right. I'll talk to you later. See you. Cheers.